<coughs> putting call of scam on the board for blue day. <coughs> Good. Okay, class. Teacher Melvin here. I think you all have excellent ideas. We're gonna call everybody William. If you're wearing if you're wearing blue, you get the day off. And if you don't, you're gonna die. Tonight, Flom presents four, two, three. Das Blue Event. And if you are listening to this at some other time, you missed it then. Sorry. Too bad for you. But if you are listening to this on Tuesday, April 23rd, 2019, you still have time to head over and show up for tonight. Starts at 6 p.m. Four, two, three. Das Blue Event. Celebrates 100 years of Bauhaus. Celebrates 106 years of Malefic. Hands on letterpress printing and art. Live jazz combo. At Jerry McIntyre Photography Studio. Location in Sacramento, California, USA. Everything blue. Details at flom.us slash blue event lineup. Or at flom.us slash 423. And next. The Bauhaus theme firm Johannes Ittensfokas. Performed by our very own Richard Durazzo. He will be live tonight. If, again, you are listening to this today, not tomorrow. Everything blue. Yay. Bauhaus. You are very old now. want to get to the Bauhaus Museum in Berlin, you gotta jump off a bus, find a park with some freaky sculptures, and go down a road. Not a specific road. Not a, this is the name of the road. A road. Happy 100th Bauhaus. Five minutes past 12 midnight. And now its mirrors reflect still another change. It is 1919. World War I is over. It will be called the Bauhaus. You took in ideas nobody thought of them might become reality, but they have become reality today. Building house. The manifesto was illustrated by a dramatic woodcut of a never forget. The world of jazz. And In Sacramento, the heart of California and around the world. Genuine modern radio. Radio Flom. Very short, 12 bars. 
because how a guy feels. Maybe they might have a happy feeling and still could play great blues. Might be very sad and still could, but it's uh, the atmosphere of the other guy. A lot of fucking attitudes going on here. Don't let me get one. Colors have been described as rough or sticky, others as smooth and uniform, so that one feels inclined to stroke them. Equally, the distinction between warm and cold colors belongs to this connotation. The expression scented colors is frequently met with, and finally, the sound of colors is so definite that it would be hard to find anyone who would try to express bright yellow in the bass notes, or dark lake in the treble. Color is a power which directly influences the soul. Color is the keyboard, the eyes are the hammers, the soul is the piano with many strings. The artist is the hand which plays, touching one key or another to cause vibrations in the soul. Wassily Kandinsky, 1911. Kandinsky believed blue was the color of spirituality. The darker the blue, the more the human desire for the eternal as covered in his book Concerning the Spiritual and Art. Kadinsky's Blue Rider Group began in Munich, an art movement tied to horses, riders of horses, and a love for the color blue. Coming into contact with the writers through their published almanac, artist Paul Clay not only built his own motorcycle, he was also the model for Jack Nicholson's George Hansen in the film Easy Rider decades later. Seeing the experiments in abstract form and color attempted by the other writers, Clay would complain that he had struggles with how to use colors in his own work. So, April 1914. August Mack and Louis Moilier crafted a modern intervention, shepherding Clay off to North Africa to visit Tunisia. Once there, they found a film crew shooting a rather odd film about a blonde-haired farmer who hated his job, a cranky uncle, and a British dude who spoke in obscure metaphors. Clay noted this in his diary. The kid keeps offering me cups of blue milk and babbling about something called the stone needle and giant warships that look like triangles, but in reality, I see nothing of the kind. I worked in watercolors, painting the giant sand crawler a dark brown, while the blue panels of a squeaky garbage can reflected the light in a way I've never experienced before. Color now possesses me. There is no need to try to grasp it. It possesses me. Here is the meaning of this happy moment. Color and I are one. I am a painter. That's just like every art class, so everybody in art class says that. It's the depression and the caffeine. The trip to Tunisia became a landmark in art history, as Clay took his work further than ever before. In 2007, Bruno Moll retraces Clay's steps in the documentary The Trip to Tunis. In the 1920s, Clay and Kadinsky ended up teaching the Bauhaus, 
a German art school that combined applied and fine arts, triangles, squares, and circles with primary colors and lowercase sans serif types. There were new ideas and new thinking ended up changing the world as we know it. And it turns out the farmer kid also knew a thing or two about the triangles in the sky, leaving his farm for an adventure where someday he'd be able to drink all the blue milk he ever wanted. You are now tuned in to Radio Flying with your boy, Roy, and I'm chilling with the most magnificent. You know how it is. We're going to be out here rolling until 30,000 years from now. This is Radio Flying. Genuine modern radio. Radio. As the Nazis took over Germany in the 1930s, many of the displaced Bauhaus masters found refuge in the United States. The story of Chicago is an American epic. It is written in her massive skyline, in her turbulent pioneering and political history. The story of a city whose amazing growth and solid prosperity you great cities are younger or more closely associated in the world's mind. We in Chicago, of course, are delighted today, and especially delighted at having you in our midst. In 1937, Lazo Maholi Notch came to Chicago to start the new Bauhaus. And now, Steve Mayallo talks to Alyssa Namias, director of the upcoming documentary film. The new Bauhaus. I think it's funny today how uh, just the term Bauhaus is being used everywhere. Uh, I saw a Bauhaus muffler shop in Berkeley. <laughs> it said Bauhaus muffler. And the traffic was so bad I couldn't get a photo of it. And of course it had the ITC font from the 70s <laughs> and everything. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the first discoveries in a way was that the school, the new Bauhaus still exists, you know? Maholi's Maholi's project became what is today known as the Institute of Design at the Illinois Institute of Technology. So to discover that the place still exists and to kind of be able to co work collaboratively and and film that school and some of the people involved with it has been rewarding and unexpected in a way. I mean, there are there are dozens of images and letters and documents that we've found that have enriched my understanding of who Maholi was and what happened at the new Bauhaus. So we these aren't original discoveries, I should say. You know, scholars have had access to this that has been really There's useful. The idea that ITT still exists. And then my little bad thing is I kept getting it confused with Mies van der Rohe's school. <laughs> and I kept going back and well, forth. They're now under the same university. Oh, okay. So <laughs> Mies van der Rohe came to Chicago to teach at IIT, the Illinois Institute of Technology. And shortly thereafter, uh, the Inst Illinois Institute of Technology, the same university, took over uh, the Institute of Design, or ID, which Maholi had started before he died. ID ended up, guess where it landed? What? In the basement of Crown Hall. Oh, of course. <laughs> So Mies designs his, you know, his masterpiece of a building, Crown Hall, which is the architecture department for the for IIT. 
And they say, well, you know, this Institute of Design School is also about design. So it should go into Crown Hall too. And, and so I, I, I like to imagine that me said, all right, I know where they can go in the basement. Um, although it's joked that like the architecture students would take refuge in the basement because it wasn't quite so hot or cold or whatever the elements were uh, imposing upon the, the glass facade of Crown Hall. The basement was much more humane in certain ways, if not as beautiful. But it was also perfect because a lot of ID, what ID became, you know, it moved toward for a long time, um, photography. It had one of you know it had one of the most. It had the first graduate program in photography, um, and and so of course the dark rooms were there in the basement, and and the students were happy about it. Anyway, so there are letters around when Maholi died, who would take over the school, and debates about that, and the pros and the cons, and who should it be, and Sybil's getting involved, and Walter Gropius is getting involved from Harvard because he was always sort of in this advisory role uh, at the institution. Um, things like that have been really illuminating. And also the personal letters, like to discover how tirelessly Laszlo and Sybil worked to try to bring over their friends and family and comrades who were stuck in Nazi Europe. Being a, being yeah. a German in America at the time, there's a great New York Times headline that we found where it says America imports genius. Yeah. And Maholi, it, it, it mentions Maholi, Albert Einstein, Thomas Mann, and I'm forgetting the fourth one. Anyway, these are the geniuses that have come to America as a result of, of the war in Europe. And there was a kind of line in, in the article that said America should, should embrace what these refugees are bringing. Things like that resonate with today. So it interests me as a storyteller when we can have moments that resonate with the political landscape today. And Maholi tried to get his, his American citizenship, his U.S. citizenship, and it took awfully long. He had a dossier at the CIA uh, as did Walter Gropius, and was suspect was a suspicious character in part because he had lived in Germany. They were being dumped on by the government in Germany, and they come here and they're viewed as Germans. Exactly. You know, Maholi's work was in the Nazi degenerate art show. Yeah, which it's joked as that it was the yeah dark. It's a dark joke, but that it was the best art show of all time, um, in the sense that it had work by you know all of these incredible artists, but in the context of being condemned. Yeah. Um. So while that's happening, Maholi is having a hard time, you know, finding his place in America, and then denied citizenship. The other reason that there was a CIA file on Maholi is that he had a history of left-leaning politics in Europe and and in the states. He was actively supporting the candidacy of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, trying to help unionize and, and get mobile and unionize and mobilize Hungarian immigrants in Chicago. So actually the only recording of Maholi's voice that that we have on record is Maholi speaking Hungarian to a group of workers. He's campaigning. Yeah, I mean it's yeah, really interesting time. What else? My background is um, I went to graduate school for architecture. Um, and so I studied design and practiced for a bit. And I think I associated Chicago Bauhaus only with Mies van der Rohe um, mm -hmm. and with these iconic buildings that we all know, you know, Lakeshore Drive, the Federal Center. Um, and uh, I didn't even know that I was not taught that Maholi was in Chicago. Uh, or if somebody did say it in a lecture, I was, you know, 
I wasn't paying attention to that one. Um, but no, I, I it, it surprised me when the um, when the uh, Guggenheim Museum and the Art Institute of Chicago and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art mounted a retrospective exhibition of uh, Maholi Naj's work a couple of years ago, I was pressed with this history that, yes, you have the catalog. <laughs> I have the cat. I drove to LA just for the show just before it closed. Oh, excellent. Yeah, it was yeah. amazing. Um, and I, you know, I and also my my producer and cinematographer, Petter Ringbaum, who's based in New York, who was a graphic designer before coming into film, both of us realized that this was a history that we wanted to know. My family is from Chicago. My mom's from Chicago originally. So it was an interesting way for me to kind of visit Chicago and understand its history more fully through one of my passions, which is the history of art and design. And I think that in terms of like why the Chicago Bauhaus, uh, you know, which was your question, I, um, I think that the intersection of Bauhaus and Chicago at mid-century is really fascinating. You know, you have a, um, a school and a pedagogical program that is uh, aimed at transforming society and working with new technologies. And then you have a site like Chicago where industry is booming. There's, uh, you know, it's on before, you know, before the depression, things are booming and then they crash. And there's this kind of it, really fascinating moment that Maholi lands in where the new Bauhaus takes root um, and is faced with like very particular problems in America. Some of which are problems that it like wanted to, that the Bauhaus in Europe wanted to set out to solve and others of which are totally unexpected. So what are some of the things that you've found? The greatest treasure in my opinion that we've found is uh, Hatula Maholinaj, who is the daughter of Laszlo and Sybil, who was born in Europe and raised in Chicago and is alive and wonderful and brilliant and energetic. And she lives in, in Michigan. And she is she's a great character. She's a wonderful person. Her perspective on her parents and on the, the new Bauhaus and, it, and its life in Chicago has been invaluable. So to become interested in someone then and then realize that there's a direct access to them as much as can be and that that person, Hatula, has kept such uh, careful and loving care of the, of the estate and of the documents and of the artwork and is so knowledgeable that that's the that's the biggest discovery in a way which she was no secret but to to really find and connect with her meaningfully has been great she's great in the film did you dig up anything else or should we wait for the film <laughs> well i do want you to wait for the film and i do want to see it because there is so much more that we've dug up um and and discovered and experienced with you know uh with hatula and with some artists we you know we interviewed artists who are influenced by Maholi, including Olafur Eliasson, uh, the Danish artist, Barbara Kasten, who's now based in Chicago, incredible photographer. Um, there's an artist named Jan Tiki, who teaches at the Art Institute of Chicago and is very engaged with Maholi's work in, in his own practice. We talked with art historians, architectural historians, 
Mies van der Rohe's grandson, Dirk Lohan, who's an architect, uh, was gracious enough to give me an interview. Liz Siegel, curator and uh, art historian at the Art Institute of Chicago, made uh, an exhibition several years ago called Taken by Design. Taken by Design presents photographs from 1937 to 1971 that were made by students and alumni of of the School of Design during Maholi's time and thereafter. And I know so many people from Chicago who should know this Great. Well, we, you know, we are looking forward to a wide release for the film. It'll be, you know, we're still, it's still in the making, but people can follow um, the production and join our newsletter to be the first to kind of hear about when it comes out. The, the website is thenewbauhaus.com. We will keep people posted. If he were around today, what would he be doing? What do you think? What would he, what medias would he be working in? So yeah, Maholi was a polymath and he was endlessly fascinated by different technologies. Uh, there are a couple things that are important to say about his relationship with technology. I, one is that it wasn't just for technology's sake. In other words, the art, he, Maholi said the artist should constantly, yep. I'm paraphrasing, but that the, the artist should constantly be questioning the way technology is used and for what purpose, right? So the camera you know, photography as a technology is not just about reproduction for the artist, but about production, about creating something new. Um, so I think that no matter what technology Maholi were to use today, whether it be social media or digital photography, Photoshop, uh, artificial intelligence or, or coding, I know that he would always be questioning and 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 pushing the limits of what it was designed to do, what it was intended to do, and what it could be used for in an artistic way. In other words, like not just using social media as a kind of networking diary type of act, but are there other ways to use it to to turn it on its head, maybe, with artificial intelligence, with, you know, computers, coding. I, I just think he would really be interested in all of it. And I think, but, I, but always in this, in this very interesting way where it's not just his, he wrote this essay called Production Reproduction that predates Walter Benjamin's work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. And the thesis is, you know, that technology should be used to create, to make something new um, and not not only for its intended function. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we wanted people to think critically, you know, that is the Bauhaus legacy is the kind of critical thinking experimentation. Maholi said everyone is talented. Exactly. You know, and this idea through experimentation, through a kind of honest investigation and, and when exposed to different tools and technologies and materials, anyone can make art and, and in, and in making art, one is also making oneself. Exactly. I mean, that that's a philosophy I've been teaching with. We've added to it a little bit with a, another professor. We came up with the concept that teaching is 20% assignments, 80% therapy. Yeah. And that's based on the idea of you got to get past the fear of doing these crazy things. And um, I blogged my Bauhaus course once. And it's at flom.us slash bow. And every time I teach it, there is a rebellion that occurs in the classroom because just the concept of point line to plane, which is just the starting point for the whole class, freaks out so many people who have views on what art is and what they can and can't do. And um, I've had some really weird experiences with right. the course. There has to be a willingness to um, embark on an adventure, a kind of 
under, understanding and experience with failure and how it, you know, or perce perceived failure and how it is part of the process. Um, <laughs> someone I interviewed said, the history of the school of design is the history of it dying again and again and again and again, <laughs> you know? Um, and if you, and if you know what it's like to make art of any kind, if you're a writer, if you're a dancer, you know that that is the, that is the story of almost any work of art or any undertaking, any institution. Yeah. Um, but the fact that it was so dramatic and literal with the new Bauhaus in America is for an exciting story that we're excited to, grateful to be able to tell in the film. Radio Flaw. Founded 1923. Bauhaus without Almost modern, beyond modern.
you're off and running. With bright eyes shining, with bright eyes shining. Typography, the backbone of graphic design. Without typography, what the world knows as fonts, there'd be no graphic design, no reading, no books, no magazines, no websites, no Twitter, no literacy. Communication would break down as we know it. It's incredible how little we think about the many costumes we dress our language in and how much it expresses. Circle, square, triangle, the geometric building blocks of design, as pioneered at the Bauhaus. Now imagine, experimental lettering based on these geometric building blocks. This was also pioneered at the Bauhaus. Which led to type designers in the 1920s, such as Paul Renner and Rudolf Koch, to create modern fonts such as Futura and Cable, that made geometric fonts part of popular culture. Eventually, even children would learn their alphabet by practicing drawing geometric letter forms. This is probably how you learned too. The problem, though, is, typography based on geometry can be cold and unwelcoming. Until now. Hello, I'm Steve Madison. I'm a creative type director for Monotype, and I lead a type design team in the United States of uh, seven people based in San Francisco, New York, and the Midwest, and I'm based in Boulder, Colorado. And um, I've been designing type for over 30 years. Radio Flom talks with Steve Madison about his newest fonts, Canero. I don't know. I'm not sure how to end this. <laughs> I'll start with this. Dude, you've gone modern. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good way to start. Uh, Carnero is a is is my reaction to the geometric movement, which I find very boring. Uh, and I, uh, that's 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 about as um, as reactionary as I get. <laughs> well, the funny thing too is since I've been doing the flom thing, it's. You're a modernist, so they think that I'm walking around with Helvetica plastered on my face. Yeah. I've decided I'm not a modernist. I'm, I'm a modern person, going back to the original term modern, meaning something totally new. Right. Early modern was all this new stuff, and then somewhere math and formulas got involved, and it, that led to Helvetica. Right. That led to just, we're going to use a formula, we're going to put everything together, and I... I've finally pieced together why Swiss design was the way it was because it was just a nightmare to do a production board. Having a formula to put everything together and measure it out made it a hell of a lot easier. Oh, yeah. But we're beyond that today. Right. Type is this thing that is in everyone's life that we take for granted. And when I teach a typography course or I introduce a typography course, everyone's just like, Holy shit, I had no idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> I just thought we were supposed to hate Comic Sans. And my big thing with that is I'll get students who hate Comic Sans, will go to DeFont, pick something a hell of a lot worse, and use it. It was like, yeah, okay, you exactly you're just why. hating yeah, for the right, hell of it. You right. don't know why you're hating. So explaining graphic design to the average person who thinks it's logo design, skateboards, yeah. t-shirts. Finally, a quote came out of my mouth that I put on a mug 
graphic design is everywhere type appears. All right. Yeah. That's it. This little explanation has been working a lot because it's like, okay, so where is where is type? Look around. It's the label in your shirt. It's it's your watch face. It's the exit sign. So you know how to leave. And how much of that is designed by people who aren't graphic designers? When you go to an emergency room, who made the form that you fill out? And was it easy to fill out? Were you able to read it? And that's kind of how graphic design is taken for granted today. And typography is the basis of all of it. So people like you who are doing font design, who are, and the key word is really fonts. They're, they're typefaces, type families. But I'm convinced the term font it just really kicked in because people love weird short words like font, uh, logo. Four-letter words. <laughs> things like that. And uh, so they know what they are. They're on a menu. Uh, in fact, I used to tell people I was a graphic designer. Now I tell them I'm a, I'm a font designer, and they don't know what to do. Yeah. Shortest, shortest conversation ever. Yeah. <laughs> they just walk away. I will, uh, I will agree with most of that. <laughs> I've been trying to get that pitch out for a while, so now i got it recorded. That's great. No, that's, that's, that's great stuff. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's what we face every day. Like, aren't, you know, aren't fonts free? And haven't all the fonts des- been designed already? And that sort of a thing. Those kinds of questions come up all the time. Why should I, why should I pay for a, a font? That whole conversation comes up in every customer meeting we have. So you're taking a geometric sans serif typeface, what the rest of the world knows as fonts these days, and you have a new package, but you've humanized it. You've done the hard thing. You've, you've added that human element to it so it's not so sterile. That was my attempt. I'm glad you think it was uh, somewhat successful. You know, talking about formulas and whatnot. I wrote a piece for Paul Shaw's book, The Eternal Letter. I was reading about all the old um, Renaissance folks who tried to formulize everything, formulizing the beautiful Roman calligraphic caps. And when um, I was doing that, it was sort of at the beginning of about five projects where I had to work on geometric sans serifs for customers. And every one of those customers was trying to approach letter forms in the same way by starting with a circle and making everything fall out of that circle. And it was very annoying to me that these people did not have the, at least the optic understanding of why you can't do that and come up with something that doesn't look so rigid and stiff and in many cases, extremely awkward or unbalanced that even those people that were in the Renaissance trying to do so would add instructions. Well, you have to fudge things a little bit in order to get them to work. So I would have to sort of explain this in each of these projects. And I I got a little bit tired of that. I got very tired of the sans serifs that they were working with that they thought were very robust and contemporary and modern looking, even though they were optically unbalanced. And I thought, you know what, I want to do a geometric inspired design that has some energy and some movement, some rhythm to it. I I don't like the static. It's kind of like when... um, you have a kindergartner playing with blocks and, you know, you have them stack them up, everything not even. But if you get them to stack them a little bit off kilter, they start to move and it gets more exciting for the playtime. You know, I kind of feel the same way with the building blocks of typography, that if you add a little bit of the unexpected, that you can engage the reader and you can give some movement to an otherwise completely static art form. 
So that's where Carnero came from. I don't know if it's successful or not, and I'm certainly not the first to try to do this. My approach was very humanist calligraphy, humanist bookhand. And I I find it interesting that you're going, well, is it successful or not? Because I've been doing custom logos here here and there, and the hardest part is getting so stuck in those optics. You're finding it gets hundreds of years of looking at this stuff. And I think one of the reasons I haven't released a font in a long time is I have to keep walking away from it. I can't sit there and keep looking at it. Even when I draw a logo, I build in an extra few days to walk away and then come back at it without being so embedded in the optics. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that I appreciated about being able to work on this on my own time, this, this Carnero. I was under no deadline pressure. I could set it aside and come back and see if I was still satisfied with what I started out. As opposed to custom type design where a client is burning for a, a delivery, or in the case of Toyota, the uh, custom typeface I did, I was very successful in convincing them that because they were a company about moving people, literally that's kind of the mandate from their president, adding movement to their geometric design was extremely important. And I had to be more conservative than I would have normally been uh, if I was just doing it for myself with that kind of design brief and really imparting a human element on a, on a geometric design. But with that in the back of my mind, I wanted to take a leap forward, not just a step forward, and and really kind of push that genre a lot further. Geometry is everywhere you look in the new logos and brandings. So what's next for you? Working on anything you talk about? Anything I can talk about? Um, (laughs) I wasn't prepared for that one, man. Um, (laughs) We are, since we um, have been talking about Futura... Um, we've been dabbling with a little bit of geometric design. I'll just say that. (laughs) Uh, But um, Helvetica was a big milestone for, it involved a lot of people and um, we have big plans to keep, keep doing stuff like that. I've been watching the press on it. Old Helvetica from the seventies was a nightmare and Helvetica next, I think was a real good push forward. So why did you guys do a new Helvetica? Well, the good push forward was 35 years old, and the typefaces that were being done at that time were being very, it was, it was kind of like the uh, um, he who dies with the most fonts wins kind of attitude. Every font foundry was trying to digitize as much of their library and have as many fonts done by the end of year so that they could advertise, you know, my CD has this many fonts on it, yours doesn't, and that sort of a thing. And um, Helvetica Noia was well done. They didn't make size masters, so it wasn't really well spaced for text or for display, to be honest. So it, it was kind of a neither fish nor fowl, as they say. So now the approach was to digitize it in a way that there's a title version that's extremely elegant and closely spaced and perfect for Swiss display typography. And then there's a text weight, which is sort of the, the workhorse for 12-point um, text, running text, and um, spaced more like the metal version for um, reading at length. And then finally, there's a micro version where Helvetica is sort of the default and actually mandated by some government agencies for use on nutrition labels and whatnot. And now finally, the micro version, because it has Helvetica in the name, it can be used for these challenging environments because it is Helvetica. It's surprising as it is, FDA and other agencies dictate that you have to use Helvetica with an X height of three millimeters or four millimeters. Well, now if they use the micro size, it's actually going to be readable too and not just scrunched into a small space. 
So the Helvetica now is is really a Leatherman multi-tool. There's just so many things it can do now right out of the box that before, if you were to try to set Helvetica Neue at large sizes, you would have to both track out and tighten, depending on which letter combination you were talking about, do all sorts of finessing to get things to look nice and display. That's one of the big shocks when I teach typesetting. What it's been for over 30 years is one size fits all. Exactly. And when I explain to students, once you go over a certain point size, and we don't know what that is yet because all the fonts are different sizes digitally now, Yeah. Uh, you have to bring in your tracking. You have to set your headlines tight. And the, the funny thing is when I get students brand new, they do the exact opposite of what, what I tell them to. <laughs> it's like uh, we go to Frederick Gowdy's don't letter space lowercase, and I'll come back to class. And I was like, why is your le- lowercase all spread out? And they said, well, you said letter space lowercase. So there's, there's this, um, if you ever give a don't do list to students, they will do that list. For it's, sure. Has, has something to do with Adam and Eve and the apple. There's one in every there's one in every classroom, and it's really wonderful. In the few few times I've had a chance to teach anything, there's somebody that's going to try to push your buttons, and um, <laughs> and often you know, oftentimes to great effect, either either in learning that wasn't the right thing to do, or learning wow, this is this is really cool, and you've just pushed the envelope, you know, so. It, it can go either way, you know? Yeah, they become flamous really fast. Yeah, right, right. Or they tell me I suck and storm out of the room. I've, I've had that. Uh, uh, you, you know the doors with the little thing that allows them to close slow? You can't slam a classroom door easily. Right. <laughs> it's far less dramatic. <laughs> right. I've, I've been wondering this because there's always this, well, we only use these 10 fonts, the uh, Massimo Vignelli approach. Yeah. And we're only going to use these. And the truth was back then, uh, if your typesetter carried that, that was the typeface you used. Right. And you you either used uh, Futura if you had Futura. Otherwise, you had Spartan and you worked with that, et cetera, or 20th century. And so we're at a point now where it's like, well, what typeface do you use the most? And my answer to that is I use a typeface that fits the project. Yeah. And I will go through hundreds of them. I build mood boards at this point. Yeah. Of course, the old thing is I'm going to work on the design and just throw some type on yeah. there. Well, I, I, I like that you brought up uh, Vignelli because he's, um, he's kind of a blessing and, cur- and a curse. His, his use of his 10 typefaces is impeccable. But the fact that he is so adamant that there's only yeah. 10 necessary... 10 typefaces necessary in your library, whatever, to me says you've only got 10 things to say. If you're a branding agency, you've only got 10 customers or because <laughs> everybody has something unique to say, I think. And, you know, one of the reasons I think lettering has become so popular, not just because it's uh, it's kind of a, um, a reaction to digital, but I think it's it's to the point where people are exhausted trying to look through 200,000 typefaces in a library they just want to knock something out, you know, and they, they do it themselves. They develop the skill or they find someone with the skill and they do a lettering project. I, I am so familiar with what's in our library with all the new designs coming out, um, historical designs that haven't been used in 30 years. And we have, we have typefaces from ITC that I bet haven't been bought in the last 20 years. Had their popularity at the time and now just aren't used. But people just forget that they ever existed. Well, Star, Star Wars brought one of them back. Yeah, so I've got <laughs> it's back. everywhere. Yeah. It's really great to see that because people obviously have done some homework. And you look at the old font, font foundries that 
when they came out with new typefaces, they were always kind of bumped up to the front of the catalog. And then the rest of their inventory was, you know, kind of in the back. And once you got the type catalog from the foundry, it was already out of date because they were working on something else to add to it. It's it's like that now, only to the 10th power. We're releasing two a month. Uh, I'm going to mention a uh, just an email I subscribe to from a group called Fresh Fonts, Naomi Stauffer. And uh, they're on top of whatever new cool stuff is. If you want to look fresh, want to look new, uh, go get your hands on this uh, newsletter. The whole grotesque... Um, grotesque revival that's going on right now that it hasn't really seeped into the local community here, Sacramento, but I've been using it a lot. I think I tie it back to the Bauhaus, but there are like really cool grotesques all over the place. And I've been using monotype grotesque for uh, the Flom stuff for quite a while now. And then I'm looking at these new ones going, Oh, I'm going to start expanding and playing around. Yeah, for sure. The, the, what people don't realize is they, uh, automatically equate Futura with the Bauhaus. Yeah. <laughs> and they didn't realize that when the Bauhaus started, they had to use the typefaces that they had on hand. And that might be everything, a modern like Bodoni, or it might be an 1880 grotesque with very funky proportions. And, you know, it was much, much later that, you know, Paul Renner and friends put together the rationalized geometry of Futura. And that became the voice of that style. So it, it's there's a lot of misconception that Futura is the first geometric design, and it was. If you look at the first Futura, he knew it didn't work. Right, it was way too geometric. Well, he was a book designer, so he was sensitive to what was needed for for legibility. I think it was worth taking the time. Oh yeah, because <laughs> I look at some of the stuff that came out. Airbar or uh, oh, Airbar was oh, I'm going to take his idea and throw it on the market really fast, etc. But I heard Airbar just made a comeback. Well, we did. Um, geometric of the time noya cabal so that was you know obviously contemporary of, of futura but it was really well done well crafted the the noya cabal the lowercase g notwithstanding being so standoutish it is uh without a doubt it was sort of my my favorite geometric back you know as a student studying this stuff so do you pronounce it coke or cock uh in in uh i i drink coke zero so it's got to be rudolph coke <laughs> He is such an interesting character. I mean, over the years, I finally got a couple of his books and just his work with a pen by itself, his lettering art is just it blows me away. He definitely would would win an award for using black ink or, you know, quantity, <laughs> quantities of black ink between his woodcuts and whatnot. It, uh, uh, I can just imagine the printers just pulling their hair out, trying to get, get things black enough for him. So... Uh, so how do we sneak some jazzes? Because the episode is Bauhaus and jazz. Right. So how do you get from geometry to jazz? Rhythm, baby. Rhythm. So you've been playing in a band for a while. Bands, orchestras, quintets, rock bands. Yeah, a lot of different stuff. I, I can jump from uh, big band to classical and just be, be just as happy playing either. It's it's uh, I've, I've got a pretty wide range of, of tastes, and uh, but I am very picky. <laughs> Uh, I discovered Big Band about the time that I met you. Uh, my dad gave me his record collection. He's like, if you're going to get into this, here's the good recordings. And I, right. uh, he gave me a Big Band collection, which was the Capitol recordings when Big Band had fallen out of favor and Capitol decided to record everyone in stereo when they were still alive. Oh, okay, okay. And that's on a CD set called Big Bands and Hi-Fi. Good stuff. And I'm always finding stuff I didn't know existed from 40, 50 years ago. Well, what's really cool is all the range of influences i don't know if you know that um 
uh, show on NPR, American Roots. Um, I started listening to that many years ago, but I just love their style of programming where they will just really drill down in a, a subgenre of a subgenre <laughs> and, and just, you know, um, follow it all the way through, you know, to contemporary times. You'll, you'll you know, find some Delta Blues uh, guitar picker and then find every, every version of that, that person's one song or one hit or whatever it's i just think it's it's such a great way to uh, explore an art form in many ways i think it's a great education but it's just so, so much fun to listen to radio flop
about that great American art, its history and what it means, the music which everyone has heard in one way or another, let's talk about jazz. To start, I'll tell you why I love jazz. Simply put, it exemplifies exactly why I play music myself. Jazz gives our ears something to enjoy and lifts humanity as a whole into being more than just primitive. Music is a magical thing, but it comes from such a simple craving humans instinctively have, and this is all humans, all the way from babies crying out to just people on the streets. Jazz is a conversation. Jazz is communication. Jazz is someone shouting out into the world about their ideas, be it musical or literal, and the most beautiful part about jazz music, someone responds. Now then, jazz was created by people who did not share the same language. Mostly, it was slaves brought over from Africa from several different regions, each with their own dialect and culture. Living in conditions without a possible and joyful future, they needed something to motivate them to keep existing. So, when they were in the fields working, they would groan and they would sing and they would make sounds in unison. It made the work bearable. It made them actually 
enjoy themselves in horrible conditions. And once instruments were added, jazz took off. In very little time at all, jazz music went from the fields to the street corners, to the clubs, to the dance halls. Jazz had been born, and by the time the 1920s came around, it took a life of its own. Now, originally, most jazz musicians learned and played by ear. That had no former training. As you would imagine, most slaves were not allowed to get formal training. As it grew bigger and bigger, however, a way to communicate to each instrumental section was needed, and jazz continued to grow into what many considered the hardest form of music there is to play. Now, I could spend time talking about the theories behind jazz, such as common modes, common intervals, normal chord progressions, normal musical progressions, and all of the weird time signatures. But all that really comes down to is what notes are safe to play and when to use them. I mean, when it comes down to it, there are only 12 notes after all. Sure, some sounds work better, some sounds feel more safe, but the beauty in jazz isn't in those safe notes. It's not in performing the same method every time. The beauty in it is the uncertainty of those wrong notes when they become dominant, when they start coming out more as though to be the feature of the song itself, and watching the rest of the band respond. Jazz's purest intention is creating that communication between people playing it, with a live audience watching each stumble into something completely different. Improvisation. <laughs> so, if you need something to listen to, I can give you a few ideas about jazz. There are just way too many great jazz musicians to name all of them. I mean, most people have heard, like, big room jazz standards. Most people have heard of Duke Ellington's It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing. When I need musical inspiration, I normally look towards Miles Davis or John Coltrane. I personally play guitar. However, Miles and John's just musical sensibility is absolutely incredible to me. I can't really pick one record for each of those musicians, or one song, I mean. If I chose a record, Miles Davis, I'd have to say, listen to Bitches Brew. And John Coltrane, I would say, a love supreme. Or a few of my favorite things. However, if you keep listening, if you keep paying attention, some modern musicians are embracing jazz as well. A surprising example to me was Kendrick Lamar's album To Pimp a Butterfly. You know, a modern hip-hop rap musician. And this album is just a beautiful example of all kinds of different forms of jazz. I would check it out. But ultimately, jazz music can be found all over. And it's not just jazz. It's so many different forms. It is the great American art form. 
it's something wholly unique that came out from the hard times that were here in America. It's magic. No, my name is Ross Hammond. Hi. I live in Sacramento, California. I'm 41. <laughs> I'm a Leo. <laughs> ah, my yeah. dad was a Leo. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Play, I play guitar. My dad, husband, dog owner. Those guys are working across the street. Yeah. So, there it is. What kind of dog? I have two. I've got, a, uh, I've got a white boxer who's deaf and got two different colored eyes. Aww. Named Ellie, yeah, she's super sweet. And then I have a Chihuahua named Omar, Aww. and he's he's all right. Yeah. I bet he's crazy. <laughs> he's crazy. Yeah. 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 There they go. Yeah, make sure you get it all. Yeah. <laughs> what are you involved in? Um, well, right now I I own a place. I run a place called Gold Lion Arts in Sacramento, on um, Riverside, and we do concerts and recitals and recordings and it's like a kind of like an arts advancement space we'll do two or three concerts a month um mostly creative music um kind of esoteric art music and um some stuff that's kind of on the fringes of jazz i've never really been a straight ahead jazz guy um was more into like free jazz and improv and stuff um i see a lot of that going on in your work i could hear the jazz in it mm-hmm. but you're doing something totally your own yeah it's definitely i, I don't really call myself uh, a legit anything i just you know not a blues guy or jazz guy or anything i just i like all of that stuff but in the last probably four or five years i i started concentrating more on playing acoustic music and like resonator guitars and slide guitar and I will use like an improvised aesthetic that I was doing when I was playing in jazz groups and larger groups and stuff and and we'll still create on the sp- on the fly but it's the instruments are different you know the um tools I'm using are a little bit different but the you know the mindset's still there I don't do a lot of of group stuff a, a little bit but most of the gigs I play right now are solo and then I'll play a couple of duets with people or collaborations as a duo with folks. I'm getting older and and uh you know I mean I'm a musician full time so you know realistically for me economically speaking solo gigs are I don't really care about a lot of street cred anymore at 41 I'm like mm-hmm. I've got enough of that I need to I'd like to get paid <laughs> you know. <laughs> so and that's the rea- that's the reality. I mean I can work I can work and 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 you know and play music I like and stuff. So that's that's kind of where I'm at right now. There's no one to argue with except myself, so, mm-hmm. you know. So we're at your house. Do you record here? Or yeah, you, uh, we're on yeah. my front porch. I've recorded here a bunch. For the acoustic stuff that I play, I actually like like a field recording style where mm-hmm. I'm out in the middle of some setting and we'll just record the sounds that are around me, you know, and they're part of the... They're, they're setting the mood and setting the tonescape of what I'm trying to do. So so I really, I really enjoy um, recording on location and stuff, you know. So, so yeah. Yeah, we got an airplane now. We got an airplane, I know. <laughs> there we go. The other, the other thing that's Sacramento that's been really cool is, you know, Luna's Cafe has been a big supporter of the jazz music and, like, creative music and basically all the fringes. It, the stuff that we do, it's really important to be able to do it like it's a listening kind of room, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to, like, a bar gig. You know, you want to play gigs a lot of times where... 
you know, people are coming to listen to you, you know, and Luna's is, Luna's is really great for that. I don't know if this, if the scene and the improvised scene in, in Sacramento and the creative music scene in Sacramento would be what it is today if we didn't have a hub like Luna's. And that's, that's been the case for, you know, going over 10 years now. There's a Monday night series there called Nebraska Mondays, and that's the, that's really where the creative stuff happens. You have to experience jazz live. You do. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. a live music. And the, I think what is interesting about it is it's really, like, if you say that word, it could mean so many different things. It's almost, like, unclassifiable. You know, it could be the same kind of jazz that someone was playing in, like, 1946, which, you know, a lot of folks still do, and that's cool. But it, it could also mean, like you know, um, electronics with the saxophone or electronics with the drum set and a singer, or it could be, you know, two, two trumpets and a trombone and just basically making as cool sounds out of their instruments. I mean, it could be all of that stuff and it should be all of that stuff. So I think what, what would be great, um, and what folks should try to remember is that when they say the word, when they say jazz, it doesn't necessarily mean Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie anymore. It means all kinds of stuff, and there's room for everybody. You know, it's not rigid, it, and it and it shouldn't be rigid, and it's constantly an evolution of of music. And you can see all of that in Sacramento. I mean, Sacramento is like a microcosm of what jazz is, because there's all these different things. That's right. There's all these things happening in town. A lot of musicians are interested in a lot of different things. So, you know, one guy might have a, a like a traditional straight ahead jazz project one night and then later on in the evening might go and take his mouthpiece off his horn and make sounds with his mouthpiece, extended technique kind of sounds. And it's all valid. It's all cool. And, and it's, it's a big ocean out there. Who else should we be looking at? In Sacramento, um, Tony Passarell is is a guy that has been around for, I mean, geez, I don't want to date the guy, but he's been around <laughs> 30 or 40 years making cool, improvised music, jazz music in all of its forms, and he's still playing. You can see him in a whole number of bands. I mean, at any given time, he's got 10 bands going on. So Tony's a good guy. Um, Harley White's another guy who he plays in like a soul band, like a soul jazz kind of band that's really cool. He plays in an orchestra. He writes music. He plays solo bass. I mean, he's another dude. Um, you know, I've, I've always got 10 or 15 things, irons in the fire. Uh, John Raskin is a new person in town who's moved from Oakland, and he's a plays a lot of different reads and um, a lot of different projects. I would say pretty much anybody that's over at, at Luna's on Mondays is the are the folks you should check out you know i'm gonna i'm gonna say this and i'm gonna listen back to it and be like oh man i forgot about this person and this person and this person but <laughs> that always happens yeah 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 it's just really interesting and, and it's fun in our community and it's cool in our community to watch like your friends play music and watch like the different stuff that they get into year by year like different projects or different aesthetics that they want to get into or different ways they want to express themselves in music and different combinations that that's always been something to me that's been really really cool and one of my favorite things about about being a musician um, is to kind of you know because you off, you have to be inspired by your peers, and um, so that's you know that's been a pretty that's been a pretty fun ride to be on, you know. Anything else you want to plug? Let's see. Uh, well, I have I have two regular gigs that people okay. people can come check me out. I play Fridays at Cupro's. Um, I play there from 5 to 7 at uh, happy hour every Friday. And then I play at Old Soul Coffee every Sunday morning 
from uh, 10 to noon, 17th and 18th and L Street, uh, Sunday mornings. I've had that gig for like 11 years. I mean, I'm easy to find. You know, you can get me on Instagram and Twitter and I keep a website and try to keep my dates up. I've probably playing about 20 or 25 gigs a month, so I'm, I'm, I'm around. And uh, definitely check out Gold Lions stuff. We have a lot of cool shows coming up in the next few months. Creative Music Adventures Music Festival at the end of the summer. So please check out, check the check the headlines about that <laughs> so okay. yeah what are um, we gonna hear here well uh this is a new record that john bafis and i did john is a wonderful drummer he plays in a band called gentleman surfer it's just a duet between lap steel guitars and drums describe it as maybe like a post-rock record meets a post-blues record but we're improvising for the entire thing and so this track is uh, called boards
to you by the makers of Carter's Little Liver Pills. The laxative with the two-way action that Carter's Little Liver Pills bring added relief by waking up the flow of a very important digestive juice. So take advantage of this two-way action and ask for Carter's Little Liver Pills. This is what we want. In this culture of hedonism is a hypocrisy, where capitalism indicates that you show your train ticket and the curtsy is gone. While the sheer economic value remains, there is despair and suicide among the frail. An economic nihilist system. Whereas the frail will only be saved and salvaged by universal basic income which will drive the civil and idiotic to despair. As their contempt over practical value diminishes and the value of beauty increases again. This is what we want. The revenge of the frail, intelligent, and vulnerable is an incompromisable defeat of the civil class who think a sadistic, ergonomic, leisure system of all who serves the present state and sells crap garbage and triviality or who fucks for a living or sells their artistic soul as key. And aristocrats, poetic leisure, Luxury and true artisan wealth should be sacrificed for matrix skyscrapers and crappy squares with crap on it. And oh yeah, keep an open mind. Not, go die in a gutter he who keeps an open mind for this sleazy economic system. Keep an open mind for the tourists. Who wonder at all the dead arts. And who would be the ones building the cathedrals. Keep an open mind so they be spared, to believe in anything but sitting in empty theaters and watching robots make movies, and sitting there, and loitering. And not to forget jogging and fitness, and not one single castle has ever built or really lived in according to a glorious rite of elegance in that world. Because? We keep an open mind. No I believe in things. I don't keep this kind of open mind. Robots will do all and conquer the universe and live on all the planets, and we will have all industrial checking of our bodies as if we are fucking cattle, and we be weighed and checked and x-rayed and... Oh, lest we catch a little cancer. And with all that our relative feeble bodies who can't survive life is infinitely pathetic and we need to adhere to the fun of Disneyland. And die in H. Hopeless despair because because we keep an open mind and never believed in anything but fun because fun is the sense isn't it serious. Serenity, well that's somewhere, but we don't know where that is, do we? Are you deaf to all this? Can I get another? Keep an open mind? Can I get another? People don't believe in beauty? Is there any more news of your cult? Do you know now how alone I am? Can you see something? Finally? Featured through tonight's episode was Zona Blue Jazz Collective. On guitar, David Coffer, Ben Coleman. Percussion, Greg Golly, Roddy Golly, Phil Jackson, Christopher Kreese, Alto sax and flute, Steve Tyke. Bass, Lloyd Love, Tom Donald, John Lincell, Alex Friedman, and on piano, Jim Wasco. Radio Flom. 
is sponsored in part by the letter B. It's a lowercase b. Drawn by Herbert Bayer. In 1925. It's one of the characters from his universal alphabet. And it's very friendly. It really likes you. Carter's Little Liver Pills. Carters were originally sold to cure headaches, constipation, dyspepsia, and biliousness. At a time when people would believe anything, go to your local drugstore and ask for our 5 cent size. Only ask for our 5 cent size. Do it. I'll wait. Diego Val Music. At DiegoVal.com. LTHMMusic.com And Our Total Work of Art Level Sponsor Squadcast.fm Remote Interviews for Professional Podcasters And Fans of Herbert Bayer Cause he knew a thing or two about alphabets Sacramento, the heart of California, and around the world. This has been Radio Flom. Recorded live before a studio. Contributors this week in order were... Kevin Scott Brown. Jeu de Pré. Vicky Brown. Richard Durazo. Zona Blue. Jenny Soto. Steve Mehalo. Alissa Namia. Steve Matheson. Rosamond. Ginny Mehalo. Airplane Flying Overhead. New Milwaukee. N. Tristicia Langorem. Also featured were... Les annonces de... Jason Spear. Audrey Daggett. Et... Cliff Allen. Plus, special thanks go out to... Jim Wasco. Ali Elil de LND. Gropius. Malevich Squared. N. Monotype. Radio Flom is produced by Steve Mehalo. Avec Milk Surface, comme lui-même. Theme music by Chelsea Davis. Sound design and engineering by Steve Mahalo. Radio Flom is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. However, recordings of contributors or guests of Radio Flom are still protected under international copyright law. Radio Flom contains features for review, opinion, critique, and or artistic transformation, and may contain adult content and nudity. Want to be featured on Radio Flom? Drop us a note at www.flom.us slash contact. Flom is a modern art game app, art history resource, faux historical art movement that uses new media to generate interest in art history and education. Flom is an online connection art history, music, and beyond through Tumblr, Instagram, and other social medias. 
We are all flummoxed. You can be too. Donations graciously accepted at patreon.com flom us. We are at flom us on most social medias. Flom is sometimes explained, but usually not. This is Cliff Allen saying thank you for listening, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, do something about it. Such a revolution would be based upon the spirit of jazz. <laughs> you guys are too far off for me.